0: Got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, we're going to deal with the first five verses in this uh, kind of new section uh, that Paul's dealing with here. And today is kind of a, uh, a study of words, to be honest with you. Uh, Paul just bombs us with what I call impact words. And so we're going to kind of pull him apart and see what he has to say about that because words are important, right? And if you miss the interpretation of words, you miss the point of the passage. For instance, just as an example, when women use the word thingy, they use it to describe everything under the hood of a car. We got a problem. Because that's the word I use for that cooking drawer next to the stove. I have no idea where that thingy is, but we got to get the words right. So Paul's dealing with what I call impact words here to make his point uh, about this wonderful story of the gospel. And uh, so before we dig into their importance, let me just lay out for you kind of an outline of Romans so you know where today's discussion fits. Uh, There are four predominant outlines or um, divisions in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 4, we have just completed. It is basically the the discussion of justification. How are sinners who can't fix their problem, how are they made right before a holy God? How how is that possible? So that's the discussion we've been through, the, the gory part of our sin and the beautiful part of God's solution. Chapter 5 through chapter 8 classically has been described as a sanctification section. Let me describe that to you. It's simply how God changes us. After God saves us, after we become Christians, what's the process that God transforms our lives to look like Jesus? So some have said that it's a discussion on sanctification, and clearly it's in there. Chapters um, 9 through chapter 11 is about God's sovereignty and specifically how he brings in the Jewish people into the story of what he's doing in redemption, but but for the most part, the way we're going to feel the pressure of that passage is that God is in total control of us, and so we'll see that in 9 through 11. And then 12 through the end of the book in chapter 16 is is basically the, the so what of Paul's Message. It is the practical application of all that he said that is true. And so we're picking up this second half or this second section of Paul's argument, specifically dealing potentially with sanctification. Now, I'm going to argue I do think it teaches transformation or that we become changed over time. But I don't think Paul's main argument in this section is simply about God's changing us. Does God change us? Yes, that's the answer. Does Paul deal with some of that in this passage? Yes, he does. But I think Paul's main argument is going to fit perfectly behind everything we've just learned in the first four chapters. His main thrust, after hearing about our sin and our inability and God's wonderful, beautiful, overpowering provision for our sin, that grace can be applied to us by faith alone, that transformation, he he goes into this next section just talking about how absolutely certain our salvation is. The assurance of our salvation. That even though we are saved by grace, we live by grace, there's not any moment in time as a Christian that we have to ever wonder if God is going to change how he feels about me. Or he will see my life in its worst places and say, okay, the rules are off now because you're not holding up your end of the bargain. This wonderful story of how God saves sinners is all about how God saves sinners. Do you get it? And so in this passage, we see the, the depiction of our assurance how confident we can be as, as sinners saved by grace. And so let me prove my point. There's a couple of um, observations you can make of even this section to kind of prove that point that Paul is making. In the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, he's, he simply starts off, therefore, since we've been justified by this faith. The transformation that we've just talked about, look how he says, how it includes, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's how he starts. He talks about this settled issue between God and us based on the faith we put in Jesus. The way he finishes this section in chapter 8 is the section we, we all love, what shall separate us from the love of Jesus? And his answer is nothing. And he goes on a long list of all the possible ways someone could be separated. He that that's not strong enough to separate from the love of God. So in those parenthesis thoughts, in chapter 8, end of the chapter, and the beginning of chapter 5, he is wrapping in the totality of how certain our faith is in Jesus. So stop for a second. I think the church has always struggled with spiritual insecurity. You could be sitting here today going, "Uh, I remember when... I had those moments of doubt and absolutely certain that the life I live or the life I struggle with is one that God will not tolerate. And so in spite of what I confess, in spite of what I believe, in spite of what I've said, I've put my trust in, I'm I'm certain God's going to change his mind because nobody nobody could love somebody like me. I think the church has always struggled with the, the certainty of their salvation because they anchor it based on feelings or they anchor it based on their life and their behavior. And neither one of those we've been talking about in the first four chapters are what merit a relationship with God. God is the one who moves on sinners, God is the one who transforms sinners, God is the one who holds on to sinners, and God is the one who secures sinners, amen? And so the only thing we bring to the equation is the sinner part. We're the object of God's affections, and so that transforms everything. And so Paul is just overwhelmed with it. I was sitting in the back going, okay, I need this message. Like, if you weren't here today, I'd preach it anyway, because I need this message. Because the reality of it is there is so much opposition to standing secure in what Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so if you get anything today, if you're just hanging on by a string, you know, you're one of those people who decided to go to church because all hope is lost. Well, it's not. In Jesus, there is overwhelming amounts of hope, and that's Paul's argument in the first five verses, okay? So we've dealt with that. One other proof that this is kind of Paul's thought is Paul goes from being justified by faith to being glorified like Jesus. And in his, in his depictions of that, he skips the idea of sanctification, like he does in chapter 8, verse 30, when he says this. Tell me if you haven't heard this before. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those he called, he also justified. And to those he justified, he also what? glorified. We go from justification to being like Jesus without a mention of how God transforms us in the process. I think that's Paul's point here. Does he transform the church? Yes. Does he confront sin? Yes. Does he build us up day after day? Do we become more like the image of Christ in time? Yes. But that's not Paul's main thrust here. He's trying to say that whoever he starts with, he will finish with. Amen. It's certainty of our salvation. So those are the two proofs. And and James Boyce kind of making his point about this same passage says this. Is it not the case that the reason he doesn't mention sanctification is that he's not chiefly concerned about it? (laughs) And that these chapters are actually focused on another matter altogether. And that is the matter of assurance, of salvation. So let's read the first five verses. Let's pull it apart. And I want you to have your head up for what I call the impact words. Because we're going to talk about these words um, this morning. Verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we are rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who, he has, been, who has been given to, to us. Now, hopefully you spotted a couple of those impact words. The first one I want you to notice is the word peace. Peace. Um, he starts out with, therefore, because everything he's been telling us about how man's sinners are justified is true. Therefore, we have now peace with God. Now, I want you to notice that he didn't say peace of God, and there's a big difference here, and I'm going to suggest to you that what he said about peace with God is far more important than the peace of God. So let me, let me describe what I mean by the difference. A very wise, wise philosopher once said, life stinks, then you die, okay, now, they're simply describing the human experience, and I think if you're, all you're looking at is the pain of life and the consequence of sin, you go, yeah, amen, brother, that's right. Life stinks, it's hard, it's all uphill, then you die, come Jesus quickly, right? So that's, that's a perspective that you can have with this. It is true that there is sickness and there's pain. And there's suffering that that people cause us and we cause others. There are broken relationships and divorces everywhere. There is all sorts of things out of control. Worry and stress and anxiousness. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. And because it's true, people are always begging for peace. I, I need this to go away. I need this to start. I need this to stop. People will do anything for peace. You've heard Tom say many times that people will sleep around for peace, and people will smoke peace and try to snort peace, and they will try to divorce for peace. The point is that people, sinners, expressing their sin carry the weight of those decisions, and they hate the life they've built, and so they try to fix it. They're on a hunt for peace. Who doesn't want peace? Who, who doesn't want the settledness of heart? And it's true. And as believers, right, we're, we're not stupid. You don't have the privilege of ignorance. As a Christian, I have to define that because I don't know who's here this morning. But as a Christian, a person who understands their sinfulness in light of a holy God who comes by repentance and faith to that holy God saying, I can't do it. I need help. I need Jesus. They receive by faith the work that Jesus has done, and they're now transformed. They're saved. They're born again, as the Bible says. As a Christian... We know that there is this peace, this supernatural, hard, unexplainable version of settled heart that happens even in difficult circumstances, don't we? Like We love those stories. Those are the stories we put on video and you tell the testimonies you have where people have just gone under the knife for, for all sorts of things and yet they stand there and go, but I believe in Jesus and I'm holding on to Jesus. And you go, wow, that's like unexplainable. Well, that's the peace of God that... That Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4, right? When he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That peace, man. I need that peace. You need that peace. We all love that peace. In fact, we need the peace because we're probably the biggest problem with our anxieties. We create most of them. So is there a supernatural, unexplainable, settled heart in difficult times for believers? Is that true? Yes, of course it's true. That's what Paul says in Philippians, it's true. But the peace of God that Paul is talking about here isn't that peace. He's talking about peace with God, which simply means the war is over. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a war raging between sinful man and a holy God. The Bible makes it really clear that that every person who ever lived is at war with him. What is Romans 5.8? God loves us in spite of our warring ways. God has, um, while we were still sinners, at enmity, at war, at conflict with God, Jesus Saved us, right? Uh, we want our own control. We want to be our own God. We don't want to have anybody dictate the terms to us. And so every person who's born is born in a re- rebellious soul at war with God. And you probably know that, right? You probably already know that's in your heart. And that's a huge problem for a couple of reasons. One, it's stupid, and you will always lose the war with God, okay? So you're at war with God, but little did you know, and maybe most people don't tell you, but God's at war with you. This isn't the happy-go-lucky-go-have-a-great-day you know, sermon part of the message, right? This is what we've been talking about for four chapters, if you've been paying attention. The word that Paul uses for the war that God has for sinners is the word wrath. Have you heard it a couple of times in this in these sermon? For instance, in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. That's the war of God against you and me. In chapter 2, he says that we're storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of God's wrath because of our unrighteous hearts. He also says that there will be wrath and fury for the unrighteous. I'm not looking good in this story, by the way. Um, that the unrighteous will, God will, in his righteousness, inflict wrath on us. We saw last week in chapter 4 that those of you who try, and people always have tried, morality or good enough or law or something like that, to offer to God as a, as a solution to our sin problem, God says, well, the wrath of God revives on you for that. So God has been using this, this term, his wrath, to describe his active war against sin. And if you sit here today and you go, I, I know about Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. Well, then the conflict is still going on. You're still at, in in rebellion against Him, and God's wrath abides on you. The war exists. Now, that's a that's a true statement, but Paul tells us here in chapter five how that war is is won, and that is that Jesus. See the, see the end of verse one. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus took God's war for us. Jesus bore the fury of God's righteous anger towards our sin. He took it 2,000 years ago and didn't blink. Every single drop of every bit of God's wrath stored up righteously for all of my thoughts, past, present, and future. All of my motives and all of my actions and all of yours. God in his righteousness is stored up and he dumped it on Christ. You understand why Jesus, when he hung there, why he was sweating drops of blood? The agony of bearing the the war of God for our souls is unbelievable. And yet, here's here's what Paul says to us after that wonderful story of justification. It's settled. You have peace with God now. The war is over, and the outcome is unbelievable. Every spiritual blessing God has is ours now and for eternity. So when the Bible depicts how our life is changed because of Jesus, it uses this kind of fruit of the spirit discussion, you know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That is impossible apart from God because I didn't have any peace before and I was an angry man before. There was no faithfulness in me before and all these things, all these things described by James about the Christian life are all the blessings of God now. And by the way, church, there is a future blessing of glory someday all the sin will be dealt with and we will truly be transformed into the image of Jesus, amen? There's a future hope for us, there's peace with God and I think what Paul is talking about here, the thrust of this passage is that there's an absolute security, a settled heart in the heart of a believer because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God, not one thing, not one thing, do you believe that? Okay, okay. Let's pick apart the words now. That was peace. There are six words remaining in verse two that are that need some color. We're going to come back to one specifically, make a point, ask some questions. Okay, so here are the four words or, that we're going to start with. The words are in verse two: access, faith, grace, and stand. Okay, let me read verse two again, and you can see if you can spot it. Uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word access simply means the right to enter or the freedom to enter. And if, you, if you're paying attention to verbs or tenses of verbs, how, uh, how Paul describes the access, the win of the access, he talks about it as a past tense activity, like it, you have obtained it. And in other words, church, whatever access you dream about having to a holy God, you already have it. There is nothing stopping you from intimacy and proximity to God and all that he has and all that he knows of you. You can come fully exposed and be fully accepted. You have full access to him right now. Jesus doesn't have to do anything else. God doesn't have to do anything else. Whatever you need to be as close as you can be to a sovereign, you already have. Amen? That's the first word, access. We're going to come back to that. The second word is faith. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've ex- obtained access by faith. We've been talking about faith for several weeks now, but it's our faith in Jesus. We said last week that your faith is only good as the object, right? Like if you believe in the wrong thing, you're still stupid, okay? But if you have your faith and trust in what God has done and who God is, then your faith is placed in the thing that can hold you up. So uh, we understand that God has made promises And so we believe in those promises, and we understand that God's promises are anchored to his character, that God would have to cease to be in order to break these promises to us, and so we have faith in his certainty, not necessarily ours, okay? Here's the third word. It's the word grace. Now, we've been talking about grace a lot, and last week I gave you this definition, but I want to clarify what I think Paul is saying here. We talked about grace this way, that it's unmerited favor or unearned favor, right? Getting what you don't deserve, I think Paul has something totally different in mind here because of that little word in front of grace, disgrace. Paul is referring to something specific in grace, like some type of grace here. So let me, let me make my point, okay? Um, he means something other than unmerited favor here because everyone gets unmerited favor. Now, not unto salvation, not everyone's going to get saved, but the fact that you can be at war with God and breathe one more second means you're getting grace, right? Because shouldn't the holy God just crush you immediately? It's okay. You can answer it. You know. Yes, right? The fact that unbelievers and God-haters eat says there's a God of grace. Everything we get, breathing one second, enjoying life, having children, living in a house, driving cars, being able to think, all is God's grace. But Paul is talking about a specific grace here, And he's talking about the redemptive grace, the justification grace that that we've been spending the last four chapters on, the gracious act of God that takes sinners who can't and makes them children of God. And remember, we've been talking about this, and this is kind of churchy words, but I'll explain it, this imputation thing or the transfer of accounts thing that sinners on their own have a debt, a ledger debt that just can't be paid. And Jesus, when he died, took that debt on himself, and God targeted your sin in Jesus. And then God gave us the righteousness of Christ. And so now my, my account now is full of holiness, and God does that work for us. That's the grace that Paul is talking about here, the grace in which we stand, this permanency of, of what God has provided by paying for our sin and granting us righteousness. Now, I want you to see the word stand here in verse uh, 2. It's simply referring to our position with God. Ephesians 2, Paul, again, the same writer, talks about our life before Jesus and says we were all children of wrath. I mean, that's it. We were the objects of God's anger. That's not a fun depiction. But what God does so perfectly in Jesus that he changes us from objects of wrath to children of God. Right? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the what? Children of God. God's love overwhelmed, overflowed, overabounded in our life so much so that God doesn't see me as the broken, twisted, rebellious one I am. He sees me as his beloved child. And every bit, every bit of the benevolence, kindness, and inheritance of God for me is is mine. That's a wonderful story. Those are the four words, but I wanna come back to access and ask you a couple of questions regarding this, okay? Remember, we said it, it means the right to enter. So here's the question. Do you act like it? So if Paul says because you've been justified by faith through grace you now have peace with God and access to all that God provides. So real simple question, if that's a fact for Christians who trust in Jesus, church do you live like it? Do you live like you have access? This last Tuesday, we had a staff meeting, and at every staff meeting, we do devotions together, just kind of encouraging one another, and this week, I asked Neil to give us devotion, and Neil went to the Old Testament, surprise, Um, (laughs) and he used the illustration of the tabernacle to make a point about how we do ministry under and in the power of God. Great illustration, and he said, you know, here's the tabernacle, there was this outer court that was accessible to everyone. It's where all the sacrifices took place, all the gore, all the busyness of people. And then there was this holy place. And that holy place is where priests would go daily to offer sacrifices, but only priests would go. And there was a special place, the Holy of Holies. It's a place where God's presence would hover above and hover in, and nobody went in there. One day a year, the Day of Atonement, a high priest would tether his leg and walk in there to offer a sacrifice to say, God, please don't treat us as our sins deserve, okay? When Jesus died on the cross in the temple, there was a veil separating the most holy of holy places where the presence of God was, separating him from people. And you know the story. The temple, when Jesus died, this veil, this thick veil was torn in two. Too tall to reach by any man and too strong to tear by any man, but God tore it saying one thing. Now the holiness of God is exposed and the accessibility to God is available to everyone. Not just a high priest once in a while and you better be clean, but dirty people covered by Jesus can have God. Do you understand that? We get, we get God. We get accessibility to the presence of God in our life. So, question. Do you live like you have access? It seems to me that, um, I mean, I talk to many, too, too many people who spend their lives... Um, Living in fear. Afraid that if I get too close to God, he's not going to like what he sees. And after all, he, you know, if I, if I get too close to God, he's going to see what I love most, and I don't want to let go of what I love most. And so I don't want him to see me, and I don't want to give it up. Um, and so we live in fear. We're afraid to come close. And here's what the scriptures say Hebrews says this Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our our bodies washed with pure water. That phrase, let us come near, is the same idea of access that Paul is saying here in chapter 5. So do you live like you have access or are you guarding a whole bunch of fear? Like I can't come close to God, he's not gonna like what he sees or I can't come close to God because I'm gonna have to give up, I'm gonna have to let go, I'm gonna have to actually believe him. Do you pray like it? That'd be a good question to ask. Like for instance, there used to be a clear, visible depiction of God saying you are not like me, not a little bit and keep out, okay? But when Jesus died, That whole veil thing, God says, come here, come close, and lay all of your burdens on. Give me your story. Give me your story, because there's nothing I don't already know, and clearly I have the power to to provide. So the rite of Hebrews, again, encourages us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's the same idea of access, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Do you pray like it, church? Church? You live like you have access? You answer that. I won't answer it for you. There's two other words in verse two that are important to understand here. It's the word rejoice and the word hope. He says, we stand in this grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice is not the word happy. It's the word boast or brag. The word hope is, is uh, not just wishful thinking, but it's a certain a certainty of thought. Okay, so get Paul's point here. Paul says that one day, this already reality will be visibly seen in our lives by transformation and we'll be glorified at people looking like Jesus. And Paul's just simply saying to the church, be certain of that. Brag about that. In spite of all the things that you're in and under, all the weight of sin in your life that you continue to perpetrate, brag about him and that story and not your own. Make sense? Boast in him. There's no more war. There's no more wrath. We get to come close. Amazing as it is, there's total transformation in our future. Now, I don't know if that does anything for you, for you but it does something for me because I can't wait to be different. I can't wait to have all those tendencies of mine just kind of evaporate into holiness, right? So now, I told you in the beginning that I think Paul's point in this passage is all about assurance of salvation. And his words are really powerful. He's talked about peace with God. And he's talked about that we have access to God and that we can stand as the children of God. And that ultimately we boast in the certainty of the glory with God. But he adds one more reality to, um, or certainty to our faith. And that is this. One way to be certain is Christians rejoice in suffering? Did I really say that? Yes, I did. So, did. so did God. So verses three through five, let me read it again. Christians rejoice in suffering. So if you want some authentication of the reality of God in your life, Christians do well with pain. Here's what he says now we rejoice. In the glory of God, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Before we unpack what he means by this this hoping or, or, or enjoying the sufferings of God, let me describe quickly what Boyce talks about and the differences of suffering and how God uses it. So... One of the ways in which God brings suffering into our life is corrective suffering. So listen up, Christian, because you're going to want to hear this, okay? Corrective suffering. You're a child of God. You love Jesus. He loves you. He loves you and who you're going to be more than you do. And so when we get sideways, when we get stubborn, when we get rebellious, when we love our sin more than we love our Savior, God brings suffering like a parent brings discipline to correct our thinking and our behavior. Anybody ever felt that before? You should have all raised your hands, so. Yeah, you have. Just, just like parenting. If you let your kids go wild, you are hurting them. That is not love. If you, if you love your child, you, you, you shape their will, to say it a little bit, right? You try to break their will, not their spirit, so that they understand that these things, they're, they're good for you. Don't, don't play in the street. Those things will kill you, Okay? God brings discipline in our life to correct us. That's one of the ways. There's another aspect to, to uh, suffering that God does, and that is suffering for the glory of God kind of suffering. I don't know if you've ever been through this, but it's certainly depicted in Scripture. Sometimes God likes to show off in our suffering, meaning the power of God is revealed in, in pain. So you remember the story in John chapter 9, I think it is, when uh, Pharisees have a question for Jesus, because the thought of the day, and it might not be different than today, was that if you sin, then there's sickness. Like, people are broken because of decisions they've made or someone else has made, so they came to Jesus with this blind man and said, all right, Jesus, who sinned? Did this guy sin or did his parents sin? Why is he blind? And what did Jesus say? Neither. He's blind so that I could be my, put myself on display, that God's glory might be seen in him, Right? Remember that story? Sometimes suffering is simply an opportunity for God to go on display. Sometimes suffering is about, um, as Boyce would say, a cosmic warfare you know nothing about. It's the story of Job, right? Job was a righteous man doing his thing, blessed life. Why bother Job? Satan shows up before God and says, hey, listen, that guy only loves you for one reason, you know. He's got it all. He's got everything you'd ever want. So God allows Satan to sift Job to reveal that Job really did have the love of God in him. So he loses his family, he loses his possession, he loses his health, only to, for some bigger reason that I don't have an answer for. Job didn't have an answer for, but he trusted God. And that might be part of our experience. Sometimes we suffer simply because there's this cosmic reason that God's not going to let us in on. The fourth reason for suffering is the one that Paul's talking about here, and it's the, it is the constructive suffering. It's God building in us our life, okay? And so he uses words in this, in this passage like in, that God grows endurance and character and hope. He uses it to transform us. R.C. Sproul said, suffering puts muscle on your soul, okay? So it's, it's the workout analogy. It's how God develops us into strong people. So the first word in verse 3 that we want to look at is the word endurance, it, it has the meaning of being pressed, uh, being pressed down upon or hammered on, okay? It's uh, the idea of crushing grapes or smashing grain or forging metal, right? So here's the point, and you can do this work. You don't get wine without crushing grapes, do you? And you don't get meal that you can eat without smashing the grain. And you don't get strong steel or strong metal without the forge, do you? And the point is, is that you don't get... Enduring, God-loving, trusting in the Heavenly Father's control kind of Christians unless there isn't some suffering. God's promise, and he takes it more seriously than we do, he says, listen, I will finish, I promise you, I will finish the work I started in you. (laughs) Suffering is one of his tools. He is so into you being finished. He is so into you becoming like Jesus. He is so into having your sin defeated. He is so into your glory in the future. Nothing will stop him, and suffering is one of his tools. God uses suffering to strengthen us. He uses it to steady us, to build us up, to, to make us persevere. And Paul, just kind of thinking through that line, gets to now endurance produces what? Character. Do you see that here? Character is, um, is the idea of tested and approved. So in in that day, they would have coins, and the coins were hammered out. They were very imprecise and not like the coins we have today. They were just kind of odd-shaped. And people got in the habit of that day of trimming off the excess, the excess themselves. They would take the edges of the coin and trim it, and they would keep trimming it. Eventually, this coin didn't look much like the real coin, and they would be trading this with merchants, and the merchants would look at it and go, wait a minute, there's not much coin left to this coin. It's disqualified. It can't buy what you want. It's the phrase that Paul uses when he's talking about how into um, doing ministry right. He says, listen, I I beat my body, I buffet my body, and I make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I be disqualified. That's the idea of having someone examine your life and you come up short, okay? Here's what what Paul says of this suffering. Suffering produces this, this strength in you, this perseverance in you, that when we're all said and done and people look at you and God looks at you, there is this tested and found real quality of character. The last word he uses is the word hope. And we've seen hope many, many times, and it's simply the certainty of God's character and the certainty of this relationship. And that's his point here. We have a relationship with God that we cannot lose because we did not gain it on our own. Jesus gained it for us. And so that's what he's talking about. And so be, be assured, church. Be confident of your salvation, church, because God made a way for peace. Amen? God made a way. And so Paul says, therefore, he looks at suffering from that angle and he goes, listen, there's no shame in suffering now. If that's what God's going to do with it, if that's really what God's going to do with suffering, there's no shame in it. Because God's love, he says in verse 5, has been fully poured out in me. Now, that's not like God gives me a love for him. This is God expressing his love for me. And God's love is far more than feelings. Does he feel for us? Yes. But God is so into his care and concern for his people, he got busy. And he did so much for us. We've talked about so much, so much of this stuff, but just let it overwhelm you. God in his sovereignty elected you before the foundations of the world. That's how much he loved you. God took on flesh and came to this earth as the person of Jesus Christ to secure your salvation. That's how much he loves you. God brings the Holy Spirit in and it puts it in your life to, to bring you comfort in your life and to secure you with him forever. God disciplines his kids like any good parent would discipline his kids because he knows what's best. God Holds on to us. God sustains us. God transforms us. And church is what I've been saying from the very beginning. God secures us. Amen. Romans 8. You can turn there, but you might want to listen to this because I really want you to absorb the point that Paul's trying to make here. Verse 35, he asks the question Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? If, if this is true, if this love is that great and that involved and that committed to my transformation and the certainty of my relationship, who can separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all our creation will be able to separate us from a love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Collective smile, maybe? How about that? It's good news, amen? That's the certainty of this thing. So let me ask you a couple questions as we leave here. Are you being pressed on right now? I, I read this passage this week and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of people feeling God's hand. They don't like their story. They don't like their circumstances. They're they're certain that they need something that God isn't providing, that God has dropped the ball on them, that the, the place they live, the people they live with, and what they have isn't what God provided. And so they want out. They want to change the story. So my question to you is this. Are you being pressed on right now? And are you choosing to deal with that pressing of God by coping or controlling or complaining? Then you're missing Paul's point altogether. So my encouragement to you is surrender to a war you're gonna lose, okay? You can't, you can't go at odds with God when God is so deliberate in making you like Jesus. So if there's an area in your life, you're going, man, that's the one I'm holding on to. I'm not giving that one up. Can I encourage you to take a risk and just tell God, just call it what it is, say it's rebellion, say it isn't faith, say it isn't belief, say it isn't in line with the gospel, and walk, walk away from it and trust in God's control of your story? One more question. Are you rejoicing or are you defeated? Because every time I hear Paul talk about what we have in Jesus, every time his punchline is, and we rejoice, and we rejoice, and we rejoice. So are you rejoicing or are you defeated? You know how you you can spot a defeated person? Bitterness, anger, depression, right? Hopelessness. So if you're chatting with someone in your family or a friend and that's what comes out of them, then you know right now they're not rejoicing in what God has done for the person. They're overwhelmed with whatever particular part of their story that they're perpetrating in their life. So I would encourage you guys, listen, believe the gospel. Please don't get tired of that punchline because that's that's what Romans is all about. Believe the gospel. And when we're all said and done with this entire 16 chapters. We're not going to feel probably any much better about us, but hopefully we're going to feel so overwhelmed with who God is. Amen? And he superabounds in our life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the truth that you hold on to your kids. You're faithful to bring a, a, a shaping suffering to our life that you're the one who starts the work and you're the one who makes the promise to finish the work and God, you will finish it. So I do pray for us, your church. I pray where we are doubting or in fear or in control. God, that you would just reassure us that the work that you have for us, the work that you have in us is a work we can trust, a faithful work your Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. God, that's really what we want. Help us to believe that. Help us to submit to it and rejoice in it, we pray. Amen.